this program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. Parties in a traditional marriage are a man, a woman, and later, very often, one or more babies. In this scenario, the baby happens as a matter of biology. When you change the law to say that a same-sex married couple can enjoy all of the benefits that a heterosexual married couple can, you can't, of course, mean that the natural outcome of that relationship is a child. The only way that can happen is if the couple obtain either an egg or a sperm or both from some other party. So when a homosexual couple has a child, the child will be missing, inevitably, unavoidably missing one or both biological parents in its everyday life. What does that mean? Up until recent times, the only type of parents, excluding parents of adopted children, were its biological parents. In part three of this series, I talked about the special case of adopted children where, due to a misfortune of some sort, the child is without its parents and is in need of two people to step in to fill that gap. The law today allows homosexual couples as well as heterosexual couples to do that. Today, with laws allowing homosexual couples to use modern medical technologies to make a child from egg and sperm donations, perhaps additionally using a surrogate mother, a new type of parent has come into existence. They're called intent-based parents, as opposed to being the biological parents of the child. The law is about allowing any couple to obtain a child by using the egg or sperm of a third party or both means that the child is missing at least one parent, maybe both. From previous programs, we know that even missing one of the biological parents very often leads to outcomes that are from bad to terrible, because nature demands that a child grows up with his or her biological mother and father. A child suffers if it's not brought up by its biological mother and father. There's no justification for ever deliberately allowing a child to be brought into the world in these circumstances. 
which is what third-party sperm and egg donations mean will happen. My focus is the rights of the child, not the desires of the adults involved. The child conceived in this way from sperm and or egg donors can't possibly have a say in the process. Because of the science, we know that no child would want to be born that way. There are a lot of testimonies to that effect from children who have grown up with at least half of their genetic makeup being from a sperm or egg donor. Some of these children's regrets have already been repeated by me in earlier parts of this series, and I'll be discussing more in the future programs. It's too late to ask the child later if he or she is okay with being conceived in that way, which is done simply to satisfy the desires of the people who want to have that child to bring up as their own. This child will grow up in a home where both biological parents are not part of that home. Anyone who's prepared to have a child this way simply isn't fit to be a parent. It's naive to think that the intent-based parents are going to stay together for very long. We know from many social science studies of our society and from government statistics that divorces are common, breakups of couples living together are infinitely more common and of much shorter duration than before a marriage breaks up. Typically, that sort of relationship will last on average for 4.3 years. If neither of the intent-based parents have contributed sperm or egg to the process of making a child, then we know what the chances that they'll have anything to do with their little modern medical miracle after they separate. It's not very high. Such parents are in exactly the same shoes as step-parents that I talked about in parts 9 and 10 of this series. Like those pets that people buy for their children at Christmas but then quickly tire of. I guess you just take the child back to the shop where you got it from, explaining that he or she isn't needed or loved anymore. Because without any biological investment by you in the makeup of the child, you can easily walk away. In part four of this series, I talked about the very tough hurdles that people who want to adopt have to jump over. An orphan child won't be handed over to just anyone. Then there are years of follow-up to monitor how the adopted child and its adopted parents are travelling. How about having a child through sperm and or egg donation? Shockingly, that is a totally different story. If the proposed parents want to have a child using someone else's eggs or sperm, then any adult with the money to afford the massive costs of doing this can do it. There are no background checks, no supervision, no home studies required. Intent-based parenthood typically brings together what Katie Faust in her book Them Before Us calls big fertility. There are massive bucks to be made in this industry. Big Fertility will typically source the sperm or the egg fronting for a donor that they've found, bringing that and possibly a surrogate mother in some appropriate jurisdictions where this is allowed. That reduces a child to the level best of a designer product. Intent-based legislation is by far the greatest, the greatest legal threat to children's rights. 
This whole situation is bad enough in itself, but it gets worse because it's totally, totally unchecked. Here are some of the more shocking examples of what's happened to donor-conceived children to show you why people who are not the biological parents of a child and are not adopting a child in need should never be allowed to have children using these technologies. What can happen to a human being created by surrogacy that's delivered to its new owner is something that the laws, shockingly, make no provision for protecting. You don't believe me? Children born using surrogates, donated eggs or sperm, aren't screened or followed up on for years after they're born in the way that happens when a child is adopted. They should be, although this whole regime should be totally banned, except where biological parents are using it to get help having a child using their own sperm or eggs. Just because they're not children who are already born and being adopted shouldn't mean that they don't deserve the same protection that adopted children get. Adoption, like screening or tracking for adults who become parents via surrogacy, should be required by law. Again, if this monstrous practice is to be allowed, which it should not be. We know for a fact that these novel practices of intentionally creating motherless, fatherless children has put children born this way at risk and in unimaginable and dangerous ways. In 2018, a story appeared in the Straits Times of Singapore on 25th February, which reported that 28-year-old Japanese millionaire Mitsutoki Shigeta, a man called the Baby Factory Dad, fathered 12 to 15 children using several surrogates in Thailand. The report said that he wanted a big family. He told one fertility clinic that he wanted to have up to 1,000 children. He was a millionaire, and he could afford to do it if he wanted. Being able to pay for children made the modern way of buying eggs and sperm legal. Shigeta hired a dozen surrogates and housed the resulting children together in a Bangkok apartment. It's suspected that he had more surrogate-produced children in India and Ukraine. No one knows for sure, or cares for that matter. Under Thai law at that time, surrogacy was legal. Surrogate mothers weren't recognised at law as being the legal mothers of those children, so they had no legal rights to them. The babies were created using Shigeta's sperm and eggs from unknown mothers. It was believed that the eggs came from white women. Shigeta's not married, so those children don't even have what's called, in modern parlance, a social mother in their lives. Somehow, a story got out that he was child trafficking. Legal action followed to deny him custody of the children. But in 2018, Shigeta won his court case, rejecting the claim of child trafficking. Because he was the only known biological parent of the children, he got to keep all of them. Cases like that resulted in Thailand banning commercial surrogacy in 2016. How must Shigeta's children, mass-produced, feel? 
did their mothers know about their children and his plans for a thousand children? I guess they sold their eggs so they didn't care what happened to them. Is it just me or is that disgusting? What sort of life are those children going to suffer? Not financially, but more importantly, emotionally. What they're facing has to be worse than what all of the other children who were given a life to face where they've been robbed of one, or worse, both parents. There are still far worse fates that can face other children born in our totally uncontrolled world of egg and sperm donors and surrogate mothers. How about this one? In 2013, two homosexual men, Mark Newton, an Australian, and Peter Trong, hired a Russian surrogate to produce a son for them. Within days of his birth, the baby was sexually abused by his fathers. It turned out that their son was better than cryptocurrency. They were able to travel the world with him, getting their travel expenses, accommodation and other expenses paid in return for letting their son's tiny baby body be used for sex by other homosexual pedophile predators around the world. In case Mark and Peter ever wanted to relive the thrill of watching their son being sexually abused by all and sundry, they captured a lot of what he was subjected to on video. While this might have given them endless hours of viewing pleasure, it also had a sting in its tail too. There is justice, even in this world, for some, and Newton and Truong were charged for their crimes. The story, a very much modified and toned down record of what they did, was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald of 30 June 2013. Both men were convicted of subjecting their surrogate-born son to what one of the investigators described as one of the worst pedophile rings, if not the worst ring I've ever heard of. The horrific abuse documented by Newton and Truong on this poor baby was so vile and shocking that the presiding judge made the determination not to show that footage during the trial for fear of traumatising the jury. Police believe, and there seems no doubt, that Newton and Truong created the boy through surrogacy for the sole purpose of exploitation. Thanks to the videos, though, their conviction was so much easier. But it gets worse to order. Noam Barkin reported on ynetnews.com on 6 February 2013 that an unnamed convicted Israeli pedophile became a father using an international surrogate. He'd been convicted to a prison sentence of a year and a half for sex crimes against multiple young children. After he was released, he organised to make his own child. This could never have happened under the strict procedures followed by adoption organisations. A convicted child sex offender would never have been able to adopt a child. But in the world of big fertility, he satisfied the only criteria that mattered. He had the money to pay for what he wanted. The surrogacy contract was legally binding. The state had no power to remove the child from his care. Another internationally notorious example of how badly the law of making babies to order works was baby boy Gammy. 
Gammy and his twin sister, Pipa, were born to a Thai surrogate in 2014, when it was discovered in the womb that Gammy had Down syndrome, the surrogate refused to abort him as his intent parents wanted her to do. The parents who had paid for the surrogacy, David Farnell and Wenyu Lee, refused to take possession of Gammy. They returned home to Australia with only his sister Pipa. Gammy was left presumably to be raised by the Thai surrogate. I mean, by this point, who cares, right? Two years later, on 14 April 2016, the South China Morning Post disclosed that David Farnell was, in point of fact, a convicted sex offender. Pipa remained in his custody, though, until he died in 2020. The only qualifications considered by big fertility are financial. That is to say, if you can afford to purchase a human child, you can have one or a thousand. In the next program, I'm going back to how big fertility conducts its multi-billion dollar business compared to adoption. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church, at the Peace Lutheran College off Cowley Street, Camarunga. Just follow the signs some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.